Hi, David. Since we last spoke, we've had a lot of data to absorb. What's the current state of the global economy? Hi, Alex. Yeah, I mean, we've had the global purchasing manager surveys for uh, May. Um, they actually continue to be, you know, in expansionary territory. Uh, new orders have actually edged higher. So that does suggest some positive momentum um, into the second half of the year. Uh, companies are continuing to hire workers and invest. Uh, the data that we've been getting on labour markets continues to be very strong. Um, and along with excess savings that um, households are drawing down on, um, then consumption is holding up despite the squeeze from high inflation. Uh, the data coming out of China suggests that uh, some of the lockdowns have been um, eased. Uh, so we're likely to get a bit of a bounce in China demand and supply over the next uh, a month or so. So the global economy is actually so far proving you know, relatively resilient in the face of both the slowdown in China, uh, as well as, of course, the ongoing war in Ukraine and high inflation. Does that mean that the recession talk is overdone? Well, I think the discussion of recession risk in the near term is, um, I think, sort of overstated. I think it's quite a low um, unless we get another big, you know, negative shock, um, you know, most uh, sort of obviously would be, for example, a disruption in Russian gas supplies to Europe. Um, you know, while we're likely past the worst in China for now, the zero COVID policy means even small outbreaks will be met with renewed lockdowns. And, and the property market there continues to be, you know, spiralling downwards. Um, U.S. private sector fundamentals uh, are generally pretty strong, um, especially for households, but higher interest rates and tighter financial conditions are starting to have uh, an impact. We've seen U.S. housing sales uh, fall pretty sharply. Um, spending on consumer durables is um, also uh, declining, in part because of this rebalancing of demand between goods and services post-COVID, but also due to higher interest rates. And, and the spectre of high inflation really shows no signs of going away. Um, inflation releases around the world have um, tended to sort of surprise to the upside. Um, central banks and economists keep pushing up um, the sort of forecast peak in inflation and pushing out when it will fall back to, quote, more normal um, levels. And, and persistently high inflation will ultimately exhaust household willingness to draw down on savings to maintain spending. And, and of course, central banks will keep on hiking um, interest rates. Um, Euro area inflation was more than 8% in May. So that again was a, you know, higher than expected. And although in Europe, underlying inflation dynamics are less acute than in the US and UK, even once we exclude energy and food, annual inflation was almost um, 4%. So I do think, you know, we've broken out of the regime that existed, you know, in that period between the end of the global financial crisis and, and up to the pandi pandemic, where you know, inflation was persistently below target. Uh, it was all about sort of lower for longer interest rates, um, sort of QE infinity, certainly um, in, in, in Europe. And I think that regime is over. And I think central banks are still sort of adjusting to that regime change. And that brings us to the latest meeting of the European Central Bank. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting meeting. Um, 
could it even be described actually as kind of historic in some respects because it is the meeting I think where the ECB effectively pronounced the end of the lowflation monetary policy regime. Um, although not a surprise, the ECB announced the end of quantitative easing and, and it did so in Amsterdam where eight years before then ECB President Mario Draghi effectively told the market that QE was, was coming. And that was a kind of defining moment in that um, lowflation regime. Um, although the ECB did not actually raise interest rates at its uh, most recent meeting, it did basically pre-announce a quarter point hike at its next meeting in July. And that would be the first ECB rate increase since 2011. Now that 2011 increase was actually soon reversed as the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis took hold. And, and, and the legacy of that debt crisis still weighs on, you know, Europe still weighs on the ECB, um, but it's now kind of referred to as, quote, fragmentation risk. In, in, in plain language, it's the risk of a widening in Eurozone sovereign peripheral bond spreads, especially on, for example, Italian government bonds, that leads to you know, much tighter monetary and financial conditions um, across the uh, Eurozone, more so than the ECB is actually targeting. So it gets in a way of you know, so-called monetary policy transmission. Um, but it also can lead to a rise in the cost of borrowing to such a level that it it raises questions around sort of fiscal um, sustainability. Although the ECB, you know, is ending quantitative easing, um, it's going to continue to reinvest any maturing bonds on its balance sheet. So unlike the Fed, it is not shrinking its balance sheet by allowing maturing debt to run off. And the ECB has said it can flexibly use these reinvestments to respond to you know, market fragmentation. But you know, I'm, I'm skeptical that this kind of flexible reinvestment is gonna be of sufficient size and sufficiently credible to you know, forestall a widening of sovereign spreads, particularly if we have a sort of weaker growth environment going into uh, the end of this year. And, and I think the market appears to, to, to think the same. Um, in the aftermath of the um, ECB meeting, we've seen a, a further widening of the, of the yield gap or, or spread on Italian bonds, BTPs over uh, uh, German bonds. So that's now widened out to around 220 um, basis points. And, and this time last year, it was only 100 um, uh, basis points. Uh, just, just returning to uh, the outlook for ECB policy interest rates. So we've got the 25 basis point increase, you know, in the cake, as it were, it's been announced for July. Um, but it's also then very likely to be followed by a half point increase in September. And the ECB also said beyond September, it expects a sustained path of further increases in interest rates. I, yeah, like maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I, I, inflation is going to be high enough to justify further rate increases, um, but the economy could be weakening quite a lot. I think um, after the summer period and going into the final quarter, um, and if financial conditions are also tightening sharply uh, with widening uh, peripheral bond spreads, that's going to put the ECB in a very difficult um, situation um, unless it comes out with a you know, a, a, a more credible backstop for 
the Eurozone um, uh, periphery. So, you know, I think, you know, the ECB is in a, in a particular difficult place as it tries to, you know, navigate this regime change, the end of the era of uh, lowflation to one where we have um, much higher inflation and, uh, you know, monetary policy has to adjust to that. And what do you expect from next week's Fed meeting? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think the Fed is pretty much on autopilot for now. Um, they've signalled that we're going to get a half point rate hike at the meeting. Um, and I think we'll get another um, 50 basis points in July. So that would get the Fed funds rate to uh, close to um, 2%. And that's near where the Fed have said they think interest rates or is, is a kind of neutral level. So over the longer term, if inflation is a, a, a 2% over the long term, then a sort of 2% interest uh, rate is broadly speaking kind of neither um, weighing down on growth, but nor is it kind of stimulating um, the economy. I think that the sort of live debate in the market at the moment is whether the Fed shift to a more gradual tightening path of quarter point increases or, or even pauses at its meeting in, in September. I'm, I, I think that's actually pretty unlikely. And that's because of what I think is going to be the path for inflation. I think the Fed's only really going to certainly pause any rate hikes if it's convinced that inflation is falling and falling relatively quickly towards its um, uh, towards its target. And I don't think we're going to see enough evidence of that um, by September. And I also think that inflation is still going to be too high for the for the Fed just to sort of sit there. So I certainly think the Fed's going to keep on going. And if inflation is actually proving sort of more sticky than the Fed has been um, uh, forecasting, uh, then I think it will keep going at a 50 basis points um, clip. So, you know, um, I think, you know, this meeting, we are going to get this, you know, half point increase. I think the Fed's still going to sound relatively hawkish. We will get an update of the Fed's latest inflation and growth forecasts, along with the uh, sort of famous dot. Um, these are the interest rate projections of individual members of the Fed's uh, monetary policy um, uh, committee. Um, but I think what we'll see is that inflation will be marked higher by the Fed. Growth, I think, will probably be revised down. And um, I suspect uh, that the interest rate uh, projections could also um, drift higher. So, you know, although there won't be too much in a way of surprise in terms of policy, um, I think there's still a lot for investors to be focused on at that meeting next week. And finally today, David, in addition to the Fed, the Bank of England and the Bank of Japan also meet next week. You know, as we've discussed before, Alex, I mean, the UK is the kind of poster child of um, stagflation. Um, inflation is heading into double digit territory. Um, inflation expectations in the UK are less well anchored, so actually have been moving higher. Um, wage growth is also um, accelerating. But at the same time, the growth outlook or, or growth momentum in the UK is, 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 is actually deteriorating and deteriorating quite fast. Um, so, you know, I, that said, I mean, I think the stagflation regime kind of leaves the Bank of England actually with little choice but to hike interest rates for a fifth consecutive meeting. Um, you know, the market's expecting 25 basis points, so that would increase the UK bank uh, base rate to one and a quarter percent. Um, but I wouldn't actually rule out a 50 basis point hike. Um, 50 does 
is becoming the new 25 amongst uh, central bankers. Um, the other major meeting is going to be by the Bank of Japan. And, and really, the Bank of Japan is interesting because it's arguably the only major sort of central bank um, that has neither raised nor uh, raised rates nor signaled that it's about to do so. It's, it's still in the market buying Japanese government bonds to cap uh, yields. It's uh, kind of keeping to its mantra that it expects interest rates to remain at their present or even lower levels over the medium term. Um, and it's certainly the case that Japan has much lower inflation than other major developed economies. So inflation in Japan is, a, is around about two and a half percent. Um, core inflation, so stripping out uh, food and energy, is is just below one um, percent. But I, I I do think that the, the weakening currency, rising commodity prices, I think that the, the pressure is still for inflation to move higher um, in in Japan. I think what we've also seen though is that this widening gap between actual and expected interest rates in Japan and the rest of the world, most notably um, with the United States is playing out in, in quite a pronounced and sustained weakening in the value of the Japanese yen. Um, the Bank of Japan appears pretty indifferent to uh, yen depreciation, but it is placing competitive pressure on other economies in, in the region. And I've, I've, I've been around long enough to kind of remember that, you know, the dramatic weakening of the Japanese yen in the mid 1990s undermined currency pegs across the region. And that culminated in the Asian financial crisis in 1997. So look, I'm, I'm, I'm not suggesting we're gonna have a repeat of that, um, not least because most currencies across Asia are now um, you know, mostly free floating, but there is a notable exception and that is the Chinese uh, Yuan. Um, you know, and, and Beijing is it's not gonna be happy with further weakening of the Japanese yen because you know, that kind of undermine the sort of export growth engine, which is really the only part of the kind of, you know, economy that's generating growth in um, China at the moment, because the domestic uh, sort of drivers of expansion are being suppressed by this zero COVID um, policy. Now, I'm not expecting a policy shift by the Bank of Japan, at least while the current governor, Kuroda, is in charge, and his term doesn't end until April of next year. But if the Bank of Japan did a U-turn, it signaled rate hikes, allowed JJB yields to move higher, I think the, the impact on global bond markets would be huge. Japanese institutions have been at the forefront of the global search for yield, which has been a kind of key characteristic of the uh, low-flation uh, regime that we were discussing. And, and if Japanese government bonds were to move higher, be more attractive to domestic investors, then I think we could see quite a significant reversal in global capital flows that would be akin to a kind of another round of global quantitative um, tightening. Um, no, you know, the, the low inflation, the low interest rate, low volatility regime is, is, is clearly over. We've discussed that a number of times. Um, Alex, you know, investors are, are aware of that, um, but I still think central banks around the world are, you know, still catching up to that and struggling to adjust. And, you know, even the Bank of Japan may ultimately not prove immune to regime change. Thank you so much for your time today, David, and we'll speak again soon. Thanks, Alex.
This podcast is issued by Blue Bay or one of its entities. Please check the entire Blue Bay disclaimer at the following website, www.bluebay.com forward slash podcast disclaimer. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended, nor should it be intended as investment, tax or legal advice. This podcast does not constitute an offer to sell, nor is it a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or investment product in any jurisdiction. This podcast is not available for distribution in any jurisdiction where such distribution would be prohibited and is not aimed at such persons in those jurisdictions. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Blue Bay makes no express or implied warranties or representations with respect to the information contained in this podcast and hereby expressly disclaim all warranties of accuracy, completeness or fitness for a particular purpose. Blue Bay is under no obligation to update the information in the podcast to reflect changes after the publication date. The information contained in this podcast is believed to be reliable, but Blue Bay cannot and does not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness or completeness. The document is intended only for professional clients and eligible counterparties as defined by the Markets and Financial Instruments Directive or in the US by accredited investors as defined by the Securities Act of 1933 or qualified purchases as defined in the the Investment Company Act of 1940 as applicable and should not be relied upon by any other category of consumer. No part of this document may be reproduced, redistributed or passed on directly or indirectly to any other person, published in whole or in part for any purpose in any manner without the prior written permission of Blue Bay or one of its entities. Copyright 2022.